the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits, and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. Christine Restaino today is going to help us go beyond the limits of what it's like to be a survivor of abuse, trauma, rape, molestation, assaults, and recover. And if you're familiar with any of my work, abusetraumarecovery.com is an online resource for those of us who have survived but need to recover. I want to apologize ahead of time. I have got a wonderful bronchial infection here, so I'm going to be breathing heavy But it will only be because I'm so enthusiastic to introduce to you the author of All the Silent Spaces, Christine Restaino. Good morning, Christine. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm doing really well. Thank you. Well, we are excited to have you be able to walk us through recovery processes that you found that you and others were able to embrace in order to get to the other side of the situation that attacked them, that made them feel Mm-hmm. vulnerable, like a survivor, but not really quite a survivor. And first off, I think Christina, Christine, I'm going to say Christina Restino. There we go. Christina Restino. Okay. I'm going to say that over and over again so that all of us know who you are. Um, I want you first to introduce us to a number of the people that are in your book and tell us their stories, including yourself, about their abuse, their trauma, their rape, their molestation, and their assault, so that all the listeners can know that this is a place where they also belong. Absolutely. So I, uh, I'll start with my own uh, experience. I was attacked in front of my three- and five-year-old children when they were young, and, of course, when they were three and five, and it was in a parking lot. We were looking for a kitty cart, and we found one. And we're walking towards the store, and there was a man sitting on a bench, and he got up because I was stuck on the the sidewalk and um, I thought he was going to help us. And instead he punched me in the face and broke my nose. Ultimately at the end, I was lying on the ground um, bleeding with a concussion and uh, a black guy broken nose. And, and that started me really on this, this process of self-discovery. Uh, right after this happened, a lot of people were asking the race of the attacker, and it was really upsetting for me. Um, I kept going, why do you want to know that instead of, like, how, how I'm doing or how my kids are doing? And it would really shut down conversations. And uh, if you're a survivor, you know how important it is to talk. You know, I, or it's, it's, sometimes we can't talk, but sometimes we all we need to do is talk. And um, I was shutting down conversations all the time. So I decided to look at it a little differently. And I um, started asking why people were asking me that question and writing down the conversations. And at first, you know, I thought my book was about race. But ultimately, I started talking to a lot of survivors. And um, they were survivors who had told me their stories before or not. You know, I had... Um, friends who had been molested, a number of friends, three or four, but we had never really shared our stories. Um, I had had friends who had been raped. I had one who had been attacked uh, in high school by a student at an assembly with a knife. You know, so there were, there were, once I started talking to them about the attack in front of my kids, a lot of people came out and started telling me their stories, and they were all different. But they had something in common, and that thing in common was that we all felt disempowered. Uh, During this process, I finally was able to look at two other events from my childhood. I had been molested at around eight or nine years old, and then I um, was raped at uh, 21. And I had never looked at these two events. I, I thought, these two events have barely affected me. Little did I know that they had affected everything, uh, including whether or not I had agency in my own life or a voice. So working with my community, all, a lot of people talked about racism and what that felt like. And, again, they felt diminished. Um, they felt like they had lost their voices. They felt as though they didn't have any agency. Say, you know, a similar feeling. Some people talked about illness and how they had lost their agency that way. And a lot of people talked about death. But talking about difficult subjects 
really opened the door for me to finally tell my own story. And it was really because of my community, the courage of others to talk about their experiences with violence and struggle that gave me finally the, the courage to talk about my own story. So um, in, in your book, you do talk about a number of different ways that are really helpful for individuals, and one of them is communicating, and you have a number of different groups or individual times that you found helpful. Can you describe some of those? Sure, sure. I had So I was in a class called Building the World We Dream About, and we talked a lot about race and, and that, that group, and um, it, it was really like how do we overcome stereotypes and racism so that we can create the world that we want. And I joined it because I was, it was right after I had been attacked and I, I just wasn't sure how to, I, I'm, I'm from Massachusetts in a small town and there was not much diversity and I didn't know how to talk about race uh, or difficult topics for that matter. And I'm, uh, I'm also from a very liberal family. You know, we talked about how everyone's equal, but we didn't really go into the the details you know it was kind of this general overarching everyone's equal treat everybody the same when I got to Georgia where I live now and um and really interacted with diversity I realized I knew nothing about diversity so building the world we dream about helped me to understand diversity and in that way and, and that started me talking about difficult things so um I started having difficult conversations and it was interesting because I could talk about racism with people I could talk about you know I I decided I was going to throw caution to the wind have all the conversations I had been afraid to have before and actually seeing the courage of people talk about these things gave gave me more courage and it was it wasn't as threatening as talking about my own race and molestation so that started me off that was a really great group of people I was also a member of the Unitarian Universalist Unitarian Universalist um, Church, or I, I know, yeah, and actually with that congregation, yes, thank you so much. No, thank you. And uh, sorry about that. I I um, had somebody interrupt me. Um, and and the congregation was really helpful. There were a lot of families who had kids, and and they were kind of horrified by the whole thing, and they they had conversations with me. Um, I also met with just a lot of colleagues. I had colleagues at work. I teach Italian studies. And um, so basically with my Italian studies department, a lot of people were very honest about what they had experienced. And that was, you know, very, very, very helpful. And um, I, I did have this interesting conversation, and it's early on in the book, where I was looking for a support group. And the support group that I was looking for, I said, I need to, to go and take my kids and I to a, a support group to help people who had experienced assault. And I said, well, there were groups for domestic violence and there were groups for rape, but there was nothing for plain old regular assault. There was no group for us. And I think about that now. I was so in denial about my other two experiences uh, that I didn't even think that they applied to me. But molestation is considered domestic violence and of course rape is rape those two groups would have helped me a lot but I was I was very much in denial about my own violence and then there were just women who came out of the woodwork uh, friends of mine who would say I was I was attacked I was molested I was almost raped and um where I was raped and and, and they really talked about um and were very honest about their experiences Plus, I advised groups of students as I became more confident talking about my own um, experiences. I started working with sexual assault peer advocates at at, um, the university where I work and also working with a group of students who do the survivor anthology, both at Emory University. And finally, I had a writing, I had a number of writing groups, um, some really dear friends that I've become very close to as a result who um, supported me throughout the whole, the whole writing experience and actually helped me see um, that I needed to look at uh, the first two events and face them finally. So, folks, I think the takeaway on a lot of what Christine Rostino is saying is that maybe you need to talk to people. 
And yet the bravery it takes to be able to talk to people is revealing your own moments of disempowerment and what that means to you in terms of having to face it. You know, Christine, another thing I picked up out of your book was the power of avoidance and distraction. I know that sounds very funny, but um, as while I was reading, you were talking about the different individuals that you spoke with or you were writing or so, so forth and so on, like you've just delineated. But I was also aware that there is a power of avoidance and distraction. And I'm wondering if you became aware of that power as a helpful tool for survivors that's opposite of coming out there and not avoiding, but nonetheless helpful. Well, I think, I think avoidance and distraction helped me until I was actually ready to talk about these events because I spent my whole life avoiding talking about this. And what it meant was that I stayed really busy so that I couldn't think about these things. A lot of survivors are are very successful because they dedicate all their time to doing work. You know, I I was always busy. I had projects that – that I, I did constantly, and I, I did very well because I didn't want to look at my life. I didn't want to look at the things that were bothering me, and I wasn't ready to look at them. And there's something about that too, something about being ready. Uh, it's interesting. When I was attacked in front of my kids um, in the parking lot, a couple things happened. The, the first thing was that I ended up on the ground bleeding and a woman came over to me and she looked at me and she said, are you okay? She, right afterwards, she, I was picking myself up. She said, are you okay? And I said, it's okay. I'm okay. And she looked at me straight in the eyes and she said, it's not okay. And you're not okay. I saw it. And that was kind of like, hmm, that's interesting because before that, for my entire life, no matter what happened, I was always okay. And, um, I was a great mediator. I looked at everybody else's problems but my own, and I didn't even care about my own voice. And and I think um, that really goes down back to the first experience I had with molestation because the man who molested me was a beloved man. Everyone in my family loved him. He was the life of the party. He was funny. He was a great cook. He was stunning. And, and I loved him too, you know, and, and – I couldn't admit for the longest time that he had molested me. I kept going, could that really have happened? And deep inside, I knew it had happened. But when you have this kind of dark line and then everybody else believes the positive stuff, I don't know, for me, it was a real um, loss of agency, of power in my life and of voice because kind of one of the biggest things that had happened to me in my life, we were avoiding it we were uh, at least I was I wasn't even acknowledging it I wasn't listening to my own voice it became very easy easy to ignore my own truth my entire life so I would mediate but I would never bring in my own uh, ideas or opinions I didn't even know what they were and so finally when I started talking about uh, about what happened and, and that happened because my writing partner she was looking at a piece that I had written, and the, the piece that I had written was about my daughter. It was a letter to the man who attacked us, and I said, I wonder what my daughter was feeling. I didn't even look at her because I had blood running down my face. I didn't want to scare her. Did she feel shame? And I, I was using all these words like shame, and my friend said, Christine, a little girl doesn't feel like this. Maybe she feels scared, but she's not going to feel shame. And And I kept insisting it had to be there, and finally she said, Maybe you feel this way. Maybe this person is you. You're the little girl. And all these bells and whistles went off. And I said, oh, my gosh, the little girl isn't my daughter. The little girl is me. And I reread the 150 pages that I had written already, and there's this ashamed little girl throughout the whole 150 pages kind of curled up in the corners. And I realized that this little girl had been trying to get her story out for the whole time. I had felt this, like, real rush to not even rush but this need to write the book and it almost wrote itself I didn't know why I was writing it but the more conversations I had um, the more conversations I had in some respects it became easier and I finally realized I need to add um, 
the molestation and the rape into the book. And that meant telling my parents and telling my brothers and, you know, my family in general. So I did tell them. And within, it, it happened so fast. Within weeks, my whole place in the world shifted. Suddenly, I knew what I felt in, in, uh, at any given moment, how I felt about situations. I realized I had a strong voice, and I, I could use it. And it actually made more of a difference in people's lives than mediating. So even though um, hiding, you know, not hiding, but, you know, keeping busy was a good protective mechanism for the first half of my life until I was, I don't know, in my 40s. Uh, when I finally was ready to look at everything and I finally did tell my story, it, it was the most powerful time of my life. It's still powerful. I'm still discovering things. So if you if you think that I'm turning me off and on because I don't want to cough in everybody's ears, so that's what you're hearing, oh, everybody. I'm sorry. You're so no, sorry. it's fine. I just don't want to cough in everybody's ears. If you think that um, – coming out and telling your family who molested you or when you were raped, it was like the beginning of you being authentic to yourself and clear with your own message and knowing your own thoughts and feelings. Can you contrast the truth, the declaration of the truth and that everybody had to face it with avoidance? And can you also contrast shame with anger? Sure. Sure. Um, so avoidance for me meant that we all got along beautifully. And I, I mean, I, when I was mediating for people and all I cared about was everybody else, I was delightful. You know, I, I, I just wanted to please people. I had this big fear of, if I, you know, of being rejected by my family because I felt if I tell them they'll reject, they won't believe me. I barely believe this myself. So if I tell them they'll, they'll, they won't believe me and, and they'll reject me. And I, I carried that fear into almost every social situation. I was desperately afraid of being rejected. I spent my life being afraid of that. And that's a, that's a really hard thing to carry around because you're constantly trying to rectify situation, situations. If you feel like you've upset somebody, at least for me, I'd, I'd contact them, make sure everything was okay. And, um, it's a lot of work, and, um, and, and that was me not having agency. And, and I didn't have agency anywhere. You know, I, I couldn't stand up for myself. I, uh, I didn't like myself. I, you know, and I think there's something about being molested, raped, uh, attacked that, you know, you, you, other people obviously didn't see value in, in you if, you know, at least this is how I felt if they were willing to do something like that. And so it was hard to see value in myself as a result. And um, so I don't know. I, I think as a result, I, I didn't have any power in my life. And then when I actually told my family, I, the, the thing that I had been afraid of my whole life happened. I've actually had people, not, not in my immediate family, they've been super supportive, but I've had people who I absolutely love say, I don't believe it, and, and really just uh, shut down the relationship as a result. And although that's painful, there's a huge sense of relief that came with that because I've been holding this information behind closed doors, and it's gotten bigger, right? And as soon as I knew that everybody knew the information, that it was out there and that I didn't have to tell anybody and that I was now being authentic with everyone, I really felt a huge sense of relief. You know, yes, I have family members who won't talk to me and they don't believe me, but that is so much better than not liking myself and um, worrying if I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings or be rejected. You know, like all of those worries are gone because I like myself. And that's a real change. And, and it, it was a real beautiful process because uh, it, it's almost like, I, I often say this, but it's almost like falling in love because if you don't know yourself and suddenly you hear your voice for the first time. And, and for me, I started hearing my voice and I, I like that voice. You know, and, and it, it was surprising to me. The voice surprised me how strong it could be, how um, caring and strong at the same time it could be, while also being compassionate, which I always was. But um, 
hearing my voice in my stomach, my head, and um, and my heart was just super powerful in a way that I had never experienced before, and it trumped everything else. You know, like it, it's more. It, I, I don't know, living to please everyone else versus having your own voice and having agency. At least, at least I felt in my life was so much more important, and um, I realized that okay, there are people who um, have rejected me because of this information, but it's not the end of the world. It would have been the end of the world had I lost myself in, in that. And, um, and I had for so many years. So it's really nice to have found myself, and it, it just feels much more powerful. At the same time, I think uh, when this man um, who had molested me when he was alive I wouldn't have been, like, I think losing my family members would have killed me. So I wasn't ready emotionally. I hadn't had enough life experience. So all I could do was protect myself from that information. And I think, you know, we're all on this journey, and we all have different moments when we're ready to look at it. And and so for me, um, once I did look at it, it was very, very powerful. And when I didn't look at it, it was still important because I – I couldn't look at it, if that makes sense. Very much, yeah, I I, I very much appreciate that statement because at one point you said, I don't feel like I had any power whatsoever prior to coming out and telling people, but the truth is you were married, you had kids, you'd gotten through graduate program, you were teaching, you know, you had done a lot of life by age 40. And I suspect, and I don't know you, Christine Rostino, but Rostano, Rostano, (laughs) Rostino, Ristino. Ristino. I don't know you, uh, but but reading your biography and reading about you, it suggests to me that you've lived a lot of life quite successfully before coming out and telling people. So this ability to avoid does give space for moving forward in a flow of life. Mm In, 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 and be very successful in many respects. And I don't want people to feel ashamed, like you're talking about, about avoiding and denying while they're moving forward in the other aspects of their life, as if they should come out and they should tell things, because you're really saying, you know, it's a matter of timing. And you can live yeah. life fully, but you're also suggesting that you live life much more fully after having told people. So if you can talk to me a little bit about the difference between feeling ashamed and like you have to hide things before and feeling like the self-love that comes out that you don't have to hide anymore. Can you speak to us about that a little bit more? Absolutely. And thank you for for saying that um, because I I do agree with you completely. It happens when it needs to happen. And and I think women who have survived violence are so wrong like they have to if if you're not looking at it you're you know you're living your life and and you're doing things that are important a lot of survivors many survivors I know have have accomplished incredible things and um and I wasn't again I wasn't ready to look at this until I was in my 40s I couldn't look at it it was it, it just was something I didn't understand yet I couldn't couldn't understand. I couldn't even understand why people would come out and tell relatives or friends that, and put them through that, you know, like, so I was very, put themselves through telling this information until it was almost like manifest destiny until I reached the point where I just had to, it had to come out. And, um, and it was a very slow process. I started at 40. I'm 52 now. My book just came out. It took me 12 years to write the book. And um, I added a chapter last year. Um, so what it's like to, to finally tell your truth, uh, I thought it would be horrible. I thought it would be so painful. But, my, you know, I did have supportive parents and supportive brothers. But even then, it was a very slow process. I told my family I was molested and raped. And it wasn't until a number of years later when I actually told them who had done it, you know, so... I, who had done the molestation, the, the rape, I don't know who did it, but I don't know the person. So basically, I, I think even then, like we, you know, there was one person, when, one moment when I added the man's name, the molestation, the man who molested me into the book, 
And for a week, it felt like everything was spinning out of control. And then I took his name out, and I felt okay again, which just goes to show you that once you, you know, like if you do tell your story uh, to people, it's, it's a slow process. You don't have to say everything. You don't have to say anything. It's, you're in control, and, and, and that's important to know. Uh, so, so I found that it took me years to get to the point where I could say who had molested me, and that was when the whole world shifted for me after I got that truth out. And I think it's because that's been a burden for me since I was about eight, eight or nine years old. And so when I finally got that truth out, then the floodgate opened and I, I could see all of my truth. I had buried that truth so deeply that uh, I, I became very good at burying truth. But, you know, what I, what I, the difference between um, the two lives is just that I spent a lot of my life trying to please people and mediate and not caring about myself. And now I do care about myself, and I am a, a player in my life, and I, and I love myself, you know. And, and I think that feels different. It's a different outfit to be wearing. It's a different pair of clothes to try on. And, and it, you know, it, it looks much better on me. At least that's how I feel. Uh, I don't know if that has answered your question. It, it feels more authentic. It's like, okay, oh, I have, a, I have a good comparison. When I started teaching Italian, I just taught Italian in the classroom, and then I was a mother outside of the classroom, and uh, I didn't know it yet, but I would eventually be a survivor. You know, I would talk about that and, and not deny it. I was all these different things. But when I told my family about um, this event, and, and also when I, told, when I started to face this finally, I, it started integrating into my classroom. It started. I started being a whole person everywhere, hmm. not just hmm. a fragmented. So when I teach Italian, I'm a mother. I'm a survivor. I am an Italian teacher. I'm somebody who's short. You know, like all of these things come together, and every cell of my body rings with who I am every moment of every day. You know, at least that's my goal, is to, to be the whole person, not just, fragmented and part me here and, and part of me there, which is what you have to do if you're a survivor. You, you do have to fragment yourself. Hmm. I, I just appreciate so much that you're saying that the way you're going to navigate your own life has to be true to your own internal process. And yet at the same time, since we're all evolving, we don't always know what our internal process is going to be once we tell or once we come out, or once we admit it to ourselves, or once we stop avoiding it, we don't know who we're going to transform into because we've never done it before. So it's kind of a scary yeah. step to take. <clears throat> and at the same time, you're giving people the courage to be able to, if nothing else, admit to themselves so that they can free themselves of any shame, of any blame, and be able to move into that kind of self-love that you talked about. Now, this integration is another whole level of advancing yourself and being able to be all of who you are, all of your experiences and show up in any moment being that all not feeling like it jeopardizes you. So in light of that, I'd also like to kind of talk a little bit about your children because they were privy or exposed seriously to yeah. the assault. <clears throat> and I think that parents that have gone through any sort of abuse or trauma of any sort whatsoever whether your children were present or not, the children can kind of pick up on the ghost of it. And I call it the ghost. Yeah. So the children will begin to kind of sense something's going on, but they won't know what. And so they'll begin to create their own narratives around this sort of stuff. And then that narrative related really to the ghost of their parent becomes integrated into the child's life. I think it's really important on some level to think to what degree do we liberate our children <clears throat> once yeah. we integrate these experiences into ourselves and admit them, whether we tell them or not, or if they saw it like they did with you, to know your children were also traumatized and that that cannot mm -hmm. be minimized, even though they may not have been bruised or bleeding. Do you want to speak about that? Oh, absolutely. And I thank you so much for bringing it up. It's interesting because maybe a week before I was attacked or a few days, I don't even remember, I bought this video. 
and it was on Stranger Danger, and I couldn't decide whether or not to show it to them. I was like, they are three and five. I don't want them to be afraid of people. I don't want them to know that people exist who could hurt them. At the same time, maybe they need these skills. So finally, I decided, okay, I'll show it to them. And I showed it to them. And then right after I was attacked, I picked up my three-year-old and he said, Mom, he was a don't know. And I realized he had the language to talk about it. And protecting my kids now means giving them the language to talk about things. So if, if you know, kids do know what's going on, even if you don't talk about about it, but if you don't give them the language, then their hands are tied in a way. They don't know how to talk about the events. So now I, I make no topic off subject, you know, out of reach for them. I always ask them, do you want to know more? So they might ask me about something that I don't know. Maybe I think, ooh, this, this, is, um, this is a tricky question, and are they ready for the answer? So I'll start giving them an answer, and then I'll say, do you want to know more? But I don't. I, I don't protect them any anymore because I realized that that video really gave my son and daughter language to talk about the attack. And, um, and that was, you know, powerful for them. At the same time, it was really hard for them. Uh, they, they suffered. My son slept in, in, crawled into bed with me and my husband for years after that. He was just so afraid. Um, my daughter cried every night and she started drawing pictures of me in the ambulance. You know, and, and like every drawing, she's a wonderful artist. Every drawing she drew was me with an ambulance or an ambulance or me lying on the ground. And um, that was, um, you know, upsetting. And, and the kids have suffered from a lot of um, anxiety throughout their lives. And it's interesting, just about a week ago, not even, a couple of days ago, I was, I was in the car with my daughter. And she said, um, Mom, I'm so afraid you're going to die. And she started crying. She said, I'm afraid you're going to die in a car accident or something like that. And, and we talked about what it would mean if I died, you know, like basically that it would be, she would be upset for a couple of years. Um, it would be very hard for a few years, but she would move on, you know, that it gets easier as time goes on. But then I, I, so we had that conversation. And then later on in the day, I was thinking about it. And I said, you know, she saw me lying on the ground bleeding and, um, probably that makes you afraid, you know, see your, your, seeing your parent in such a vulnerable position probably makes you afraid that they might die because you know they're vulnerable. Even now, you know, I, I wonder how much of this is in there in, in the way that they interact with the world. Like how much did this affect them? For, for a while it was my son's first memory. Now he doesn't remember it. And my daughter definitely remembers it and you know for we would drive by the store when they were four and, and six and they would look at the store and they go mom do you remember when that guy you know, of course I remembered but I would say oh yes I, I do remember that you know they had it in their heads uh, they would go over it they've always had questions recently my daughter started crying because she felt guilty because she didn't help me when the man was attacking me you know so there are they're just things that come up at every turn. Both kids have suffered from depression. You know, I don't know how much of this is just, you know, something that would have happened or if it is uh, a result of having been exposed to violence when they were young. The, the good thing is that um, I'm not a people pleaser anymore. I mean, I like to please people, I, but I'm not teaching my daughter and son how to ignore their own voices. I'm, I'm teaching them how to have a strong voice and I'm modeling that for them. And I see that more often than not, they actually do have agency in their lives and they do have a strong voice. And, and for a while I wasn't modeling that because I didn't know how to do that. I just knew how to be the person who wanted everybody to be happy and wanted to mediate. And, and I really see, you know, as parents, we can change patterns in our family and patterns in the way we behave once we're aware of them. And that'll change, you know, that helps change the way our kids interact with the world. Well, I greatly, I greatly appreciate the many details of uh, wisdom in what you just said about managing children. I think that we need to kind of face that in the United States, we still kind of have an idealistic society 
where we actually think it's okay to believe that the children will not be exposed to such violence. Excuse me. Whereas even in pockets of our own society, children are every day exposed to violence or definitely in different cultures and different countries, violence and war and battle and gangs and mafia governmental intolerance are, are rampant. And so it's an everyday experience of whether or not you're going to know the person's going to come back at the end of the day. So we are yeah. still living in kind of this fantasy that violence doesn't occur as a course of life. And we want that to become, you know, worldwide. But at the same time, we are still living that bubble. And you do talk a lot about the bubble of perceptions in terms of racial tensions or cultural tensions and, I um I I want you to address this, but I'm also really cautious about this. I want to address that the two out of the several times in which I was rendered powerless, it was with the same racial group, and one was in front of my son, and my son developed a kind of a prejudice, and it was mm. it was like shocking to me because I had not had that prejudice, hadn't organized that prejudice into our family. But he, out of fear, had developed, you know, what are the general bits of information here that let him know when he's in danger? And that's what he generalized to. Now, he was about four years old, but nonetheless, that's what he did with that information. It wasn't until about a year later where I realized he was actually manifesting this kind of prejudice. And you discuss this in your book, and I found that it on one level was kind of awkward. And yet very Mm -hmm. poignant. And so can you awkwardly and poignantly discuss our (laughs) delusions, our delusions about racial issues, our delusions about feeling like violence isn't a part of our life? Because certainly every child I work with now knows about gun violence on their campus. Every child knows about stranger danger now in the schools that I work in. Every child is aware of that sort of stuff. They know their level of vulnerability to a degree. But in other locations and in other countries, they live that awareness. Well, what do you yeah. think? Well, I, I I agree with you entirely, and I, I'm sorry that your son had to, and you, of course, both of you had to experience this. Uh, I relate completely because my son, um, you know, I happened to be attacked by a, an African-American man, but, you know, it, it just, ha- it, it, it didn't, what but my son was hiding behind my legs every time he saw an African-American man after that. And I had to really sit down and talk with him because like you, I hadn't, I, I, I felt as though that wasn't part of my vocabulary, et cetera. Um, so I had to sit down and, and say to him, uh, you know, just because, uh, we were attacked by an African-American man doesn't mean that everybody who has a similar skin color is going to do the same thing. You know, we ha- we had to have this discussion. And I ended up having a discussion with him about uh, this this young kid's shirt. Uh, my son had a – I mean, my son's shirt. My son had a shirt with a walrus on it, and he had a friend who would run away from him every time he wore the walrus shirt because he was afraid of walruses. <laughs> And Benny was, you know, I said, Benny, just because, um, you know, somebody wears a shirt, does it, you know, how do you feel when he runs away from you? Uh, you know, and, and Benny felt pretty badly about about the way that he felt when this, this boy ran away from him. And I, I kind of said, so um, – you can't just judge people based on what they're wearing or what they look like. Everybody's different. That feels pretty lousy, huh? We have, the story is uh, more complex than that. Um, but we did have to have conversations. We, we had conversations about white privilege. We had conversations about racial profiling. And my kids at three and five understood these things. Like we used examples and things like that. And they got it. And, and so my son, you know, he, he, you could see he was afraid of African American men, but he, we, because we talked about it, um, and continued to talk about it, that it, it left. And I, I think, you know, it's interesting. I went to a, a conference on bias, and at the conference, 
they talked about bias as something in the brain that happens to everyone. Like every day, maybe I choose one shirt instead of another, or I go to work one way instead of another. We're always making choices. We're always um, exhibiting in some respects bias. And what we have to do is be aware of our biases, you know, not with our clothes or the way we drive to work, but if we notice that we're being, we're having certain thoughts about, um, I don't know, uh, people of a certain uh, group, then we need to kind of acknowledge, okay, people are by nature biased. Everybody has biased thoughts, but what am I going to do with those thoughts? You know, now that I've acknowledged that I have, that I, I'm feeling this bias, what do I do now? It's a bias, you know? Like, and, and so being really frank with ourselves about bias is really important. And so we talked to, I, I talked to my son about that, like, okay, if you are afraid in front of an African-American man, you have to say, well, the reason I'm afraid is because he has the same color skin as a man who attacked my mother. But that's the only reason, and uh, it's not, you know, it makes sense that I would feel that way, but it's not fair to the man that I'm hiding from. Does that make sense? And um, and so we had a lot of we had a lot of conver- conversations about that, um, about about many things, you know. And and it, it, so there were a lot of conversations about race with my son and and daughter as a result of this experience because we had this dual dual thing. The man happened to be black, but then people were asking me the race of, of the attacker. So. We had to talk about racial profiling, bias, um, you know, all kinds of things, white privilege, because of the way pe- the questions people were asking me. And kids are smart. They say, why did that person ask that? And then we had, Benny was also experiencing some of that. And so um, it, it's, it's hard to navigate, but I found it, it was the first time in my life I had talked about these things. And it was important. I realized how important it is that we talk about that. We are talking to Christine Restino, the author of All the Silent Spaces, and she's giving us all sorts of insights to be able to overcome when you have become a survivor to molestation and assault and trauma and abuse and the impact it has on our children and what part it plays in culture and racism and things of that sort. So complex conversation, wouldn't you say, Christine? Yes, I think it's very complex. And that, so you bring up a good point about the complexity and, uh, and, and, and also about having these conversations because a lot of times people in our society don't want to have difficult conversations. There seems to be this three-month rule, if somebody dies, if you're attacked, if you are sick, and, and you finish treatment, then there's three months, you have three months to get over it, you know, and then people want to move on. But sometimes we're, we don't want to move on. Maybe it's authentic being in that space. Maybe it's important that we stay in that space for a little while. And um, the complexity of these, these experiences is important to recognize. And, and one other complexity I'd like to bring up is just the complexity of talking about the attacker because um, I remember after I was attacked by the man in the parking lot, all I wanted to do was sit down and, and talk with him and connect in a different way because I felt if, if he was able to attack a woman in front of her young kids, something must be going on in his life that's really difficult. And I wanted to talk to him about that. And um, I I also think about the person who molested me and what made it difficult to talk about was this paradox. You know, he, he molested me, he did something that was not so good, but he was also in, in my eyes, wonderful. He, he was funny. You know, there are all these things I loved about him and my family loved about him, but we're not allowed to, to, to talk about the complexities. In fact, often we're made to choose. So, the man is either a saint or a monster, right? And if, you know, we don't admit that people can do public good and private bad. And I think if we could see the complexities of people, if we were to acknowledge that people can be both good and bad, that they can make poor decisions and good ones, then this would allow the survivor to talk about someone that they love who has um, inflicted violence on them and it would also allow the families of that person to talk about it and maybe 
support the survivor as a result because the survivor needs their family. You know, they need support. But a lot of times the, the, the survivor is ostracized because it's somebody that people love. And, uh, and, and sometimes they're, they're very, you know, they are pillars of families. So I don't know. It's, it's just such a, um, it, it's so important to see the complexity in these situations, to live mm-hmm. the complexity with the person, to bear witness to their stories and acknowledge, you know, not just jump to the monster, acknowledge all the good things that person has done because they're human. I think that one reason that many survivors feel shame is because they don't know how to be angry, uh, revengeful. These are really negative emotions in the category of things. Angry, revengeful, incensed indignant how dare you um but these emotions for women especially raised to be people pleasers are not okay we're supposed to overcome and we're supposed to get better and we're supposed to be nice and we're supposed to understand and we're supposed to reach into understanding the human dilemma of the person so even though i agree with what you're saying about allowing the complexity of the perpetrator to be both good and bad both loved and hated both feared and safe, I appreciate that. And at the same time, I know I work with so many survivors who feel guilty about hating the person, uh, about their anger, about their rage, about their indignance, because they feel like they should sacrifice themselves for the other person's dignity. So I just want to create that other side of the discussion as well. What do you think? I agree with you entirely, and thank you for bringing that up. And and by saying that we should look at the complexity of a person, I don't mean that we shouldn't express anger or be angry. We have every right to be angry. We have every right to say, you know, you've you've messed up my life and I'm pissed off. You know, like absolutely, I think survivors should be angry. You know, it's it's, I mean, it's it's infuriating. It's awful. You know, and, and a lot of like I lost my voice until I was in my 40s and that's infuriating and I am angry and 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 I'm I'm very angry I'm angry too because this man put me in the position of having to break my family's hearts you know like that makes me angry so all of these things make me angry and and I I'm not saying we shouldn't be angry but what I am saying is showing the complexity of a person allows people to talk about that person because so many people in society deny that a person is capable of both things. And so, um, so there, I think there's a difference between anger and talking about the complexity of a, of a, a person. The complexity of the person means that they can do good and bad, right? They, can, they, they, they are complex. We're all complex. But I think survivors should be angry. They have every right to be angry. They should, we, we, don't, we shouldn't hide that anger, um, you know, good for us for feeling angry. Um, it shows we're alive. It shows we're human. And, and we've got a lot to be angry about. Well, so the other side of it, right? The other side of it. There's yeah. always there's many, many sides to it. It's like a faceted diamond. There are many, many sides that the light comes in through and to allow yourself to be that complex person. So see, the complex person is a person who has the power and the tool set to avoid uh, remembering or talking about something that might otherwise cripple them. It also means that you have the power to face it straight on, come out with it and give yourself voice over it. It also means you have the power to be able to be angry. It also means you have the power to be curious about the complexities of yourself and the other person. So there's this complexity of approaching these things is, is, is important to not eclipse anything else. So I would be cautious to the listener to not feel shamed into any one position. Don't be shamed into, I need to tell people. Don't be shamed into, I need to hide this. Because you don't know exactly what's going to allow you to be liberated and integrated and fully yourself if you're always hiding from yourself. But you also don't know exactly what would be the ramifications of fallout. Because there is, there's fallout in telling people what's going on. So, 
in light of that, we, we are almost at the end of our program, and we're talking to Christine Restino, the author of All the Silent Spaces. Christina, what would you like to make sure the listeners walk away with at the end of this program? So I'd like listeners to know, and it's kind of echoing what you just said, that they're in the driver's seat as far as their process is concerned for healing. Um, if the world feels, you know, if your situation is unsafe, if you tell people, then don't tell people. You know, like, if you're not ready, you don't need to tell people. It's all up to you when you're ready and and when you need to talk about these things. Women are complex, uh, wonderful people, and, and we have strength. You know, w- women have overcome because that's what we've always had to do and the fact that you're standing on your own two feet right now living your lives is something to you know to be commended and um the other stuff will come and if if you're ready for it if um if things are safe if the right conditions are in place and uh and i'm just so proud of of all of us i think i think we're amazing and um where we are is where we are. And uh, the thing, I always tell my students this, um, when they're looking at the clubs and the things, the accomplishments of other students, that that student is being, you know, they're basically being themselves and they're really good at it. But don't try to be them because there's already somebody being them that, you know, don't try to be the other person. That other person is always going to be better at, than you at being that person. Always try to be yourself because you're the only one who can be as good at you as you are. You know what I mean? If that makes sense. So just go at your own speed. Be yourself. Go with what your internal uh, voice is telling you to do. Not, you know, don't do what I've, I'm doing unless it's right for you. Um, we, we all have our way of interacting with the world and interacting with our trauma and interacting with our healing process. So um, there's a lot of freedom in that. There's a lot, there, there's no right way to heal. Well, very well said. And very, uh, what a way to, to make sure that everybody can kind of walk their own path, even though that might cause a little bit of confusion. Well, gee, what do I do? You know, but at the same time, you have to come to terms, have to come to terms with what you're creating by telling, by not telling, by facing, by not facing, by avoiding, by not avoiding, et cetera. You know, I'm just realizing that even though we're at the end of the program, that we've left out a very important part of the population, that's men. And when you mentioned mm-hmm. that women are amazing, I was thinking that <clears throat> one of the things that's happened with hashtag me too, and I have two sons, and they will vocalize how they really feel like this has stirred up an anti-man consciousness, the same way yeah. that would be ra- racist or whatever. And I'm always very careful to say to women, and to the men who are kind and loving and thoughtful, because um, there are most men are that way. I would say I would say there's yeah. a greater percentage of men that actually do care. And when I was reading your book, All the Silent Spaces, I paused a lot over the time you talked about your husband, because your husband experienced a tremendous disempowerment as well. He couldn't yes. keep his wife safe. He couldn't keep his kids safe. The, the, the realization in the United States is that we still have a belief that we can be kept safe and we should be kept safe and that we should live safely. That isn't true everywhere, and we want to be real sensitive to that. Um, but when that is the belief, men can often feel like a failure, falling short. Their yeah. own trauma is in their own self-esteem as being deflated. When they hear that someone has molested or raped their loved woman, or their loved partner, it feels uh, so full of hatred and anger and disgust and confusion on so many levels. It's really important to know that the man is going through a lot of shifts. Would you like to speak to that at the end of this program? Certainly, certainly. My my husband did struggle a lot, and and he was definitely angry and upset, and he he was what my daughter was saying. Uh, I wish I had helped mom. And he, he said, I couldn't help your mom either. I couldn't help you. You know, I feel the same way. And, and he really felt disempowered. There was a lot of renegotiating our relationship and his relationship with the kids as, as well, because 
the kids and I experienced it together, and he was alone in this. And um, I think it really bothered him. He wasn't there. And um, it, it, was, it, it, it changed a lot. It, it changed a lot for him. I don't think he felt safe in the world because he, was, he loves us so much, and he was just so worried about all of us. Uh, it was a shock. It was a shock for him. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think, and, and also one, I think it's one in seven men also experience violence, molestation, rape. So that's also another figure uh, to think about. I, I believe it's one in four women uh, and one in seven men. So uh, my book does mostly talk about women I'll have and, and violence, but there is the other side to it that men have experienced these things too, um, and, and they're going through this same process. But, but yes, when, when a woman experiences violence, uh, the men in their lives um, experience it in some ways as well. And, and, uh, and it's horrible and disempowering and, and earth-shattering. You know, I mean, our, our lives, all of our lives, spun out of control. And that was mine, my two kids, and my husband's. We were just we were spinning out of control, and we didn't know how to pull in the reins and find our footing again. It took us a long time to do that. <clears throat> I think that one reason why people ask, like, well, what color was his skin, and where did it happen, and what were the circumstances, I think that people often ask those questions because they're hoping to pick up on enough clues or cues so that in a similar situation they'll be able to know that that's a dangerous moment, potential. So mm-hmm. I think when they, they did that, instead of like you mentioned in your book, uh, gee, you know, why aren't they asking about how I'm doing? They're looking, they're investigating what are their own signs of safety for themselves. Because in, the yeah. in the face of anybody's near-death moment, we sit there and say, well, how likely is that going to happen to me? We do that when someone gets cancer. Well, see, how did you get cancer? Did you eat a lot of this? Did you fail to exercise? Yeah. Did you smoke? Smoke, because we're actually investigating whatever the causes of getting that cancer were so we can say, oh, well, I don't do that. Therefore, I'm not at risk. But the truth is, is that everybody in those questions are asking, what is my risk and how can I avoid that? And when they see you and they know that you've gone through those things, they realize that that risk is one degree away from them if they've never experienced it. So I wanted to add that to your narrative when you were so curious as to why people would ask, well, why are you asking about the race or why were you asking about that? I think we're all wanting to know how can we keep ourselves safe? So insensitive as that question is, it's important. Yes. Do you want to answer to that? Oh, I just wanted to say, I agree with you entirely. People don't want to think that this could happen to them. And, and there were a couple people who asked me because they had been attacked and, and I didn't know this at the time. They had been attacked, and they wanted to know if it was the same man. So that, that I didn't even think about. But, um, you know, so, so there were many reasons why people asked that question. And, and, and right, some people said, and, you know, some of the people I talked to said, um, that couldn't happen to me because uh, I carry my keys and I'm always alert. One person said it was my fault because, I didn't pay enough attention to the, the, those around me, you know. So there were a lot of people trying to distance themselves from this event because they're terrified. They're terrified it could happen to them. And it's important to know that if it does happen to you, there are ways of surviving it and moving beyond it and becoming full of life afterward. It is not a curse. It's not like the death sentence, but no. it is very scary. Well, Christine, Ristino, the author of All the Silent Spaces. Tell us at the very end, how can people get a hold of your book? So um, it's any, you could get my book anywhere where books are sold. So definitely Amazon.com. If you go to my website and it's ChristineRistino.com, so www.ChristineRistino.com. Uh, you can get my my. There's a, a link, and you can click on it. And Eagle Eye Books can send you a copy. Wonderful. And, uh, so so please visit my website. There's there are a lot of articles that I've written. I've written a lot of op eds on overcoming violence and having difficult conversations with our kids. 
Beautiful. And, uh, and I'd love to, I, I'm also very, very open to talking with people who have experienced violence. So don't hesitate mm. to email me. I'm at C-R-I-S-T-A-I at Emory, E-M-O-R-Y dot E-D-U. Oh, beautiful. Well, thank you for taking your time today. Folks, the dialogue continues, and your dialogue may be different or similar to what Christine has mentioned. But please carry on that dialogue with yourself in a way that's full of love, self-respect, and discovery. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye, Christine. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody. Thank, thank you so much.